With respect, my dear Johannes, he rescued a poodle, an animal everyone likes to have around, a creature who can even be expected to perform useful services in the way of retrieving, fetching gloves, tobacco pouches, pipes, etc. But I rescued a tomcat, an animal regarded by many with horror, generally condemned as perfidious, not of a gentle or benevolent disposition, never entirely relinquishing its hostility towards mankind. Yes, I rescued a tomcat from motives of pure, unselfish philanthropy. I heard a tiny squeaking, a cry almost like that of a newborn baby. I leaned far out over the balustrade, and in the bright moonlight I saw a kitten clinging desperately to a post to escape death. No doubt someone had been drowning a litter, and this little creature had clambered out again. Well, thought I, it may not be a baby, but it's still a poor creature crying out to be rescued. I climbed over the balustrade, reached down, not without some danger, got hold of the whimpering kitten, picked him up, and put him in my pocket. about animals telling animal stories. We are here in episode two, part two. In part one of this episode, we got into the structure of this totally bonkers book by E.T.A. Hoffman. Like we said, a cat writing his autobiography is actually not the only strange thing about this book. Instead, the cat's autobiography is spliced together with what's described as a biography of the Kapellmeister Johannes Chrysler. This man, Chrysler, is the ultimate intense artist, but more importantly, he's friends with Murr's human master, Abraham, and he eventually cares for Murr himself. In episode two, part one, we explained that the biography of Chrysler is actually sort of a prequel to the autobiography of Murr. So we keep going between these two stories, Murr and Chrysler, but we're actually in the same MCU, that is Murr cinematic universe throughout. The biography of Chrysler is all about the time when Chrysler and Master Abraham were at the court of Prince Irenaeus. This all happened before Myrrh was born. Then some stuff goes down at court, and Chrysler and Master Abraham end up leaving the court and going their separate ways. At this point, Master Abraham adopts Myrrh as a kitten. A couple of years pass. This is the time described in Murr's autobiography, his first couple years of life while he's at Master Abraham's, learning to read, write, etc., then, at some point, Chrysler returns, and he not only meets Murr, but we learn that Master Abraham is about to travel, so he entrusts Murr to Chrysler. And we have reason to believe that Murr actually wrote his autobiography in Chrysler's study, and that's where he found this mysterious autobiography that he's, of Chrysler that he supposedly tore up. So that's, how this, that's the story of how the biography of Chrysler is a prequel to the autobiography of Murr. They're both in the MCU, the Murr Cinematic Universe. So we discussed all that in episode two, part one. But now, in episode two, part two, let's dig into the first few chapters of the book, beginning with that cold open we just heard. So we just heard from Master Abraham. This was an excerpt from part one of the book. 
And Master Abraham is talking about the night that he rescued the cat, Mur. And this is actually the first time we're hearing from Master Abraham in his own words. Uh, we have already met him through Mur's eyes, but this is the first time we're getting his side of the story of how he encountered this cat. And as we were reading part one, we got thinking about the births of the animals in our lives, the ways in which these births are knowable and unknowable to us. Haley's dog, Knox, and my cat, Pebbles. So Haley, tell us about how you met your dog, Knox. Knox was born in Mississippi. He was born in February of 2017, so he's four years old. Knox came into my life when I had recently returned from a trip abroad and I was looking for a canine companion. Knox is an Australian cattle dog, which is a super common breed of dog in the South. And his litter of puppies had unfortunately been abandoned and they were open for adoption. So as I was looking for a puppy, I came across this litter of puppies and I thought they were all so cute. When I made it down to Mississippi, I had been living in Memphis at the time. When I made it down there, there were several puppies left. Uh, there were three, two of them were jumping and preening and doing all that like fun puppy stuff. And there was Knox and Knox was eyeing the other two with incredible suspicion. <laughs> he was just standing off to the side, just side eyeing those two like frolicking, joyful puppies, looking at them like he could not possibly understand what they were doing. And of course I picked him. I knew he had to be my dog. So I picked Knox. I also discovered as I got him that he has this lovely little heart in one of his prints on the side. So between the suspicion and the heart, I knew I made the right choice. So I took him with me. Unfortunately, he did not think that I had made the right choice because he just wailed the entire way home, which is about 90 minutes from the middle of Mississippi up to Memphis. He was just shrieking and wailing in the car. And when I made it back to Memphis, <laughs> drove him straight to a friend's house where I was like, oh, I'm going to show him to these new people. They're going to meet him. He's a puppy. I want him to get to meet some kids. My friend had kids and a, a poodle. And I was like, oh, he's going to be make some new friends. And he just had the same suspicious look in his eye as we met the friends. He liked the people and he liked the human, or yeah, he liked the people, he liked the kids, but he regarded the poodle with much distaste, which has become a continuous theme in Knox's I mean, life. I can't say he didn't warn you. So exactly. what made you go after the puppy that was side-eyeing instead of the cute, playful ones that wanted to be around you? I just, I felt a certain kinship to his suspicion and his desire to watch others having fun while not necessarily having fun yourself. I felt, I was like, oh, that resonates with me to just watch this happening. Yeah, and I've actually met Knox, so I know that he, I, I, I call him a cookies and cream dog. He has yes. that kind of interesting... He has the, the sprinkles and the swirls and the mix of gray and black and white, and he's a very good dog. He is the chill one of those three, and he is never tired, so you can only imagine what... Chill is a relative term. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's chill for a cattle dog, so he doesn't have... He's chill for a cattle dog. Have you ever let him loose around some cattle? No, he's unfortunately a cattle dog without any cattle. He's <laughs> just... <laughs> Um, yes, a, a, a dog with no purpose, except for Ball. He has replaced cattle with Ball in his mind. 
Maybe I should introduce him to my cats sometimes yes. and pretend that my cats are cattle. Actually, yeah. I think they really don't like that. Both of them in the back right now, um, resting and bathing in the sun. And yeah, tell me a little bit about how you ended up with Pebbles. In 2013, when I was living in Cincinnati, I used to hang out a lot at the PetSmart in Oakley, Cincinnati. So whenever I had a bad day or I needed a break, that's where I used to hang out because they had this whole display, they had this whole room full of cats for adoption in these little cages facing out towards the customers. And on certain days, there were volunteers in that area from the rescue who would let you interact with the cats or let you in to see them. And I guess I don't really remember how this happened. Yeah, every time I think about getting another cat, it seems like such a huge decision. I got a second cat about four years ago. I got Pebbles about eight years ago. But every time I think about getting another cat, I literally had a dream a few nights ago that I think Pebbles inceptioned into my <laughs> dream. And I, all, I don't remember anything about the dream. I just remember I just woke up and it, I had this message in my head that was like, your life is great with the two cats that you have. Why do you want to change anything? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't actually remember what made me go from zero cats to one cats, or if it's easier to go from one to two or two to perhaps three. But one day, I guess I decided to go for it. I asked to take Pebbles out. I don't remember why, but I do remember that she was instantly super, super cuddly. She was just mm. purring and climbing into my lap. So I'm a simpler person than Haley. I, the cute, cuddly one, I was like, yes, okay, yes, she's the one. At the time, her name was Katie, spelled C-A-Y-D-E-E. And I was cool. like, that's got to go. So I went with Pebbles because she was purring like a babbling brook. That's so sweet. I know, very sweet. But the cat rescue wouldn't give her to me on the same day, so I had to come back a few days later. And the rescue's can get pretty serious about that stuff. When I was getting my second cat, the cat adoption people were very concerned that I was in a relationship but not married. So they actually oh. <laughs> asked me what would happen to the cats if I broke up with my partner. Oh. <laughs> so they're oh, very okay. staunch believers that cats must have two parents and also that marriage is the best way of ensuring that. Anyway, so I came back a few days later for Pebbles. There was a different volunteer and I got Pebbles out. And the volunteer was like, oh, I'm so glad that somebody finally came back for Pebbles with this kind of sense of pity for Pebbles. And I was like, mm. oh, what do you mean? She's great. It's super sweet. She's so cuddly. What's lady talking about? And I was like, this woman's just maligning this cat. So I'm yeah. just going to take her, put her in the carrier. And the second I stepped out of that room, she was just screaming bloody murder <laughs> no. in the carrier just these deep soulful meows and everyone in the pet smart was looking at me and was she was screaming all night i really wanted to have her in the room with me i thought maybe she'd cuddle in bed with me and instead halfway through the night i like put her in a different room and <laughs> i still feel some guilt about that and she does not let me forget it so she still wears her feelings on her sleeve if she's mm -hmm. mad at me she will let me know Mm -hmm. And actually, she, yeah, she's a great communicator. And even as I'm saying this, I see her sitting. She lets me know that she's mad when she gets up and sits just out of reach and then turns her back to me so that I see, so that her butt is facing me. <laughs> I don't know what she's trying to say, but she's a very but good communicator. Yeah, there's a clear message. <laughs> there's a clear message, even if you're not sure exactly what she's trying to say, which I feel like 
just harkens back to what we heard Master Abraham recount that only someone who has motives of pure, unselfish philanthropy would be willing to rescue or to save a cat because cats are fairly useless <laughs> and they never quite relinquish their hostility to mankind. Don't no, but I don't, yeah, I don't know about hostility to mankind. I, when I first read that, I was like, hey, now, like, my cat is very useful. <laughs> but then I, I think about it and I think I like our relationship better knowing that they are completely useless to me. Yeah, it means that there's, uh, yeah, I don't have them around to help me with research. I can say for certainly that while Knox, I feel like, is very useful to me, he has never fetched my gloves, nor my tobacco pouch, nor my pipe. So by the standards of Master Abraham, I don't know that Knox would be considered a useful creature. I think they would be surprised to, they as in Pebbles and Knox, and my other cat's name is Deanna. I think they would be surprised to hear that we find them very useful, but not mm. for the reasons that <laughs> they think they would like to be useful. Yes. I find Pebbles extremely useful as a lap warmer. She's my writing coach the last few weeks. I sit down in this special chair and I, depending on which cat I would like to invite, I have their fav- each of their favorite blankets and they sit down on me and then they make angry noises if I try to get up. So it's actually a great motivator for just getting some work done. Yeah, they're very good for naps, but I think Knox had other, I don't know. I don't know what dreams Knox had for cattle herding in yeah. Connecticut. Yeah, he, I always say if I if my parents had only taken me to figure skating lessons at 5 a.m., I could have been a champion. And I feel like maybe Knox thinks if I had only taken him <laughs> to fields of cattle from a young age, he could have been a champion <laughs> cattle herder. <laughs> Pebbles actually, so there's a lot of discussion in this, in part one, about the uses of cats mm-hmm. as mousers. And there was, Pebbles was, in fact, she's had her mousing days. There was this one time that I lived in this really crappy apartment in New Haven, Connecticut, and... There was, I I keep hearing these sounds from inside the walls. I heard them actually coming all the way up into the heater, like the, it was an old kind of furnace heater. So I'd I'd hear Mm -hmm. it, felt like it was inside the furnace. Side note, the the furnace, like the heating in this apartment, pretty sure never worked. One of the the many reasons why it was a terrible apartment. Yeah. I kept hearing these sounds and then eventually I realized, you know, I, I guess it must have been mice, but I noticed that pebbles would always get really perk up and go stand right next to the furnace and I think she was like she was really hoping to show me some of her skills but I think mm-hmm. the mice are qu- pretty smart too so they never made an appearance yeah they knew what was waiting for them on the other end <laughs> yeah so yeah I think she has a lot of things that she'd like to she'd like to show me that she can yes. be useful for yeah talking about these stories of how we each met Pebbles and Knox I think we all Everyone who has, who's a human patron to an animal in their lives <laughs> has this kind of birth story, uh, often a very well-rehearsed one. Certainly, I know the story of how I met Pebbles, even though there are certain things that, certain details that I don't remember, like how I decided <laughs> to get her or why I chose her or any of that. But we all have these uh, these birth stories, and we get different versions of that in part one of, of Tomcat Murr. And I noticed, especially in how I told Pebbles' birth story, that I said very little about how Pebbles was actually born. All of that is really unknown to me. I wonder about it a lot, but I don't know what her life was like 
before she met me and when I'm telling her birth story, the only thing I care about, the only thing I, you know, her story begins with the moment that I met her, which is not really fair to her. And we get a version of that in in part one. So we get in the Murr narrative, we get the story of how Murr himself is his experience of being born, perhaps. But in the Master Abraham section, so in, in WP1, we get the story of how Master Abraham rescued Murr. Walking home from this event, he hears this squeaking, meowing sound. He, he goes and looks over the bridge. He sees that there's a cat there. He grabs the cat and he puts the cat in his pocket. And then he comes home, falls asleep, forgets about the cat in his pocket. Master Abraham wakes up the next morning and he realizes that he's forgotten about this kitten in his pocket. So he hears this meowing from his closet. And it seems that this is the episode that's at the beginning of Murr's narrative. Mm-hmm. He's in this cramped container with soft walls, a coat pocket. Something reaches in to grab him. He shoots his claws out and uh, scratches the person. And the person hits him, mm-hmm. which Murr describes as his first lesson in moral cause and effect. And then this human, who turns out to be Master Abraham, gives him a milk puts him in a warm bed. What we don't hear from Murr is precisely this period from when, the moment he's born mm-hmm. until the moment that he meets Master Abraham, which we know is a length, it's, is a length of time. Yeah. Perhaps Murr just hadn't, was such a small kitten that he just hadn't opened his eyes yet. That's a possibility. Perhaps he just doesn't want to start his story there. There are a lot of different kind mm-hmm. of explanations, perhaps, for why why there's this not contradiction between the Murr and Master Abraham stories, but there does there is this time unaccounted for. Murr's birth story doesn't begin with Mina, his mother. It doesn't begin. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mention his litter mates at all, but he also doesn't mention being drowned. It's in line with Murr's self fashioning as this. Mm-hmm. Self-made, bootstrapped, (laughs) or not bootstrapped, but puss in boots. There are boots involved. Yeah, like we said in episode one, he's the Alexander Hamilton of Tomcats from the musical version, not the real version. Hamilton shows up at Princeton talking about how he's this orphan immigrant who's going to change the world, and kind of that's how Murr conceptualizes himself and his backstory. There's all this myth surrounding him, he's the star of his show, right? He's the star of his show, and he has come into the world with a mission, with many things to write, with many things to learn, with much to give. And so everybody's secondary to Murr and his central mission. So Mina is not mentioned, so his siblings are not mentioned. It's just the moment of conception is Murr's moment of self-realization, almost. Like, that's his birth when he is first aware. Yeah. And the only human that he acknowledges in that birth story is Master Abraham. Yeah. And Master Abraham is, yeah, they play, they, they both not, obviously Master Abraham is at the center of Murr's birth story as he tells it, because he's in the position of rescuing Murr, and he's this great hero who rescued a perfidious animal. So you can observe these differences in the respective birth stories that are told by the cat himself and by the human patron. And I think it's actually interesting, the more I think about this, that Murr is so tied to his intellect, like he's very like cogito ergo sum, like he's very, I think, therefore I am. And so for him, his birth is like really tied to this moment where he has that first lesson in, it's the first lesson in moral cause and effect. So like 
his birth is like that moment, right? When he first has this lesson in moral cause and effect, he positions it as almost immediately after he was born. And it's probably, we know from the other two narratives that it's much, it's at least several days past that point. So I think that for Murr, like the birth is when he is able to think and conceptualize and tie together cause and effect. Murr is definitely an enlightenment cat. His section begins with him talking about how none of us can really know, none of us can really comment on the moment at which we each achieved our consciousness and it must always be unknown to us. We can only rely on hearsay and what other people say, but we can never really be certain about it. It makes me wonder if he realizes how fictitious this birth story that he gives has to be. I think he's acknowledging that he cannot fill in the gaps for us of what happened right after he was born, when his eyes were closed when he was drowned. That's all part of this myth-making about his birth that Murr is engaging in. And as you were mentioning, there are several, not necessarily contradictions, but different interpretations of the same events or of motives within characters throughout the book. So for instance, Master Abraham, who we've been talking about, sees his rescue of Murr and then his subsequent raising of Murr as this selfless act. He says that he raises Murr with exceptional tender love and care, while Murr, on the other hand, says he was raised kindly, but he has this kind of fear of the birch and fear of this moral cause and effect if he steps out of line. And so that happens from the first moment where he really realizes he's with Master Abraham. born in Clifton, Cincinnati, in a feral cat colony. Clifton is a great neighborhood. Walkable, lots of restaurants, lots of dumpster wings for a cat like me. But I always hungered for more than just dumpster wings, although I also love dumpster wings. I taught myself to read and write by sneaking into the window of the classic seminar room at the University of Cincinnati. I would sit there between classes and read the Greek and Latin passages on the blackboard. The first time I snuck in, I thought the vintage 1950s furniture was so musky and soft, I couldn't help myself. I peed on one of the cushions. Then when the next Greek class came in, Everyone was sniffing around, asking if a cat had peed in there. And one of those students was Prathima. When I saw her, I knew immediately that she was my human. I waited to reveal myself to her, and was hoping to introduce myself as a potential Greek tutor. At this time, my Greek and Latin were a lot better than my English. But just a few days later, I was trapped by a cat rescue and put in some kind of cat cubicle setup. One by one, all my siblings left, and I was the last one left. So imagine how happy I was when Prathima showed up at that cat cubicle. Clearly, she'd followed me there, and she said she'd like to take me home. I was so happy. I even forgot to recite the poem by Sappho that I'd prepared in hopes that she would be impressed and would hire me. Instead, I reverted to my native language of Kaddish. 
But no matter, when she finally took me out of that strange cubicle a few days later, my heart was so full, I broke into song. Some say an army of horsemen, some of foot soldiers, some of ships, is the fairest thing on the black earth. But I say it is mom. I think that's definitely something that'll keep coming up, not only in part one, but also as we keep reading on in the book. I think that wraps up our conversation about this recurring theme of different interpretations of the same events throughout the book. And I think that's a good place for us to end episode two. We'll be back in episode three, continuing our discussion of part one of the life and opinions of the Tomcat Murr. We will watch Murr struggle with the tension between family and ambition, while Chrysler struggles with an unruly guitar. See you then. See you then. See you then.